0: We are glad to see all of you on here that have logged in for our virtual service this morning. Uh, welcome to everyone. Uh, my name is Mark Irving. I serve as one of the pastors uh, here at Fellowship Nashville. This is my wife Meredith, and our kids are on here somewhere as well. Um, so if you want to scroll through the screen, and you can at least see their names on a little box on your screen, but. Um, It's really good to to have you with us, and we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Ruth today in a sermon series that we've given the subtitle, From Ruin to Redemption, and it's been um, just a a privilege to be able to um, dive into chapter one over the past two weeks. I've really enjoyed um, uh, bringing those messages. They've spoken to my own heart, Um, and today we have a guest speaker. And his his name is Michael Lyons, and he's a good friend of mine, former student um, who serves a, as a discipleship pastor at Evangelical Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, he did his undergraduate work at Cedarville University, where where Meredith and I met him. Um, he earned his master's degree uh, from Southern Theological Seminary. Um, actually, was a, a student of Bill Catreres' um, dad. Um, those of you who know Bill and um, he received another master's degree and a PhD in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern languages and literature from Hebrew Union, Hebrew Union College in Ohio. So clearly, this is the case of a student surpassing his teacher. Uh, Michael is educated far beyond my intelligence. Um, <laughs> but while he was a, a student at Cedarville, um, Michael served um, on my second student-led discipleship leadership team from 2003 to 2004. And While he was serving um, in this ministry, uh, someone caught his eye who was also serving on that uh, leadership team, a a young lady by the name of Erin Delp. Um, And uh, if memory serves me correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, (laughs) um, it took Erin a little bit longer to reciprocate the attention. Um, But uh, Erin and Michael are now married, happily married. They have um, five kids, uh, four boys and one outnumbered girl and um, they uh, live in Cincinnati, Ohio, as I said before, and and Michael texted me a picture that jogged my memory this week of our youngest, our, I'm sorry, our oldest daughter, Ellie, who was young at the time, serving as the flower girl in their wedding, and it's hard to believe that Ellie's now a freshman in college in the same age as Michael and Aaron were when we met them. (laughs) Um, But uh, when we made plans to go through uh, the narrative of Ruth in a sermon series together, I knew immediately that I wanted to invite Michael to share with our congregation. Um, The Old Testament is his area of expertise, and he actually did his doctoral dissertation on famine in the ancient Near Eastern world um, during the time period of the judges, of which Ruth was written, and there's a famine in Ruth at the beginning of the book, and so I um, uh, couldn't think of anyone better to come and share with our congregation, not only in his expertise but also in his heart. I I trust Michael's character and his his love for God, his love for the Word, and I'm, I know you're going to be blessed along with me to to hear him hear him this morning. So, Michael, welcome. We we would give you a warm applause and welcome if we were all together, but. Uh, Thank you for coming and joining us today. (laughs) Well,
1: it's a great privilege to be with you all this morning. Uh, About the only thing true that Mark said was that my wife uh, took a long time to be convinced by Mark and Meredith that she should marry me. And thankfully, uh, I give much thanks to Mark and Meredith for persevering in that. And uh, we have five wonderful kids and are just so thankful to be here. Aaron is here somewhere, I think, on the screen uh, somewhere in here. Uh, we've been praying for your church this week. I'm so sorry that you have not been able to meet for the past three three weeks, I think now, right? Um, but I trust that God's word is sufficient to speak even through Zoom. Uh, I thankful for this kind of technology. So I just would like to open us up in prayer again, if you don't mind, Uh, and then we're going to kind of just jump right into the text of Ruth and look a little bit at chapter one again just as a refresher to kind of remind you where we're at in the narrative uh, before we get into chapter two, and I'm going to focus today on chapter two, verse one through 16 after that refresher. So would you just join me as I pray for our time in the word this morning? Father, God of heaven and earth, you who made all things, make us new once again today in Christ through your word. By the power of your spirit, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the spirit of Christ says to his church in Nashville. I pray this, Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we uh, arrive at chapter 2 this morning, remember that chapter 2 comes at a crisis point in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. The book of Ruth, of course, opens up in chapter 1 with just this kind of thunder and devastation. Uh, If you look at the first five, six verses there, you see that, that literally nothing goes right for Naomi, nothing at all. The story opens up with famine in the land and with famine comes starvation and plague and even war. Famine, you should know, means the loss of property as families just scramble to sell everything that they have for food. And in many situations, uh one very common response to famine in the ancient world was to actually sell your children into slavery in order to keep them and you alive so you can imagine uh, especially if you're a kid this morning listening in on here you can imagine sitting around the dinner table this afternoon and looking at each other and wondering who's going to be the next one sold tonight uh, just so that you can eat every day is a fight to stay alive and to find food. So after this, then, then uh, Naomi's family flees Bethlehem, right? This Israelite family flees and goes to Moab, a country of, of disdain. This is a pagan country. Then their sons, to top it all off, they take Moabite wives, which is directly against the law of the Lord. But it doesn't last long, does it? First, uh, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, and then Naomi's one son dies, and then the other dies. And so at the beginning of this book, we have Naomi just in the situation of finding herself completely empty. She's lost her home. She's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. And in the eyes of her peers, she has the, the status really of a, of a cursed woman. It doesn't get much worse for someone in the ancient world. Naomi's entire world here at the beginning of chapter one has just been ripped to shreds and taken apart. And she has nothing left. And so do you remember, I believe Pastor Mark preached last week on the next section of chapter one. Do you remember how Naomi responds? Look at the rest of chapter one. She decides, Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem and her two widowed daughters-in-law begin to come with her. But then Naomi responds here in verse eight. She responds and she's speaking to the daughter-in-laws and she says, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now there's a couple things going on here. First it's highly likely that, that Naomi does not want to return to Bethlehem with two Moabite women with her. That's, that's really kind of awkward. You know, as she walks into town, there's kind of a sense of what, what happened in Moab, Naomi? <laughs> what, what are you doing with these Moabite women? Second, don't, don't read this as kind of soft-spoken affection. This is sarcasm. This is deeply sarcastic, something more like, go return each of you to her mother's house. (laughs) May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. Now, I think Pastor Mark pointed out in his sermon last week, the importance of the ESV language here, deal kindly. This is the same word in the Old Testament that is often translated as steadfast love or kindness, like in the Psalms when it talks about the steadfast love of the Lord enduring forever. The way I like to think about it is to translate it as loyal love. There's this sense of loyalty and this affection and and almost a surprise of this loyal love. So Naomi here is sarcastically saying May God be loyal in his love to you. With the implication, though, he's obviously not loyal. He must not be loyal to me. And her sarcasm gets even worse in verse 9. And then in verse 12 and 13, she reveals that that she really has no hope at all. And she's, she's very bitter. She's a bitter woman. So in verse 12, she says to the daughters, turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for, for I'm too old to even have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? And then listen to what she says here. No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is, this is a very bitter woman. And of course, she, this is made even more clear in the text when at the end of chapter one, she returns to Bethlehem and, and she introduces herself and, and she kind of walks up to the women, holds out her hand and says, hi, I'm bitter. Her name Mara. She calls, she renames herself Mara, which literally means bitter. This is bitter woman. So what, what just happened in chapter one? Naomi has has called into question the loyal love of the Lord, the God of Israel. She declares that, that God has turned his back on her. Hope is lost. The rest of the story now, now begin, as we move forward, the rest of the story begins to answer Naomi's question. Is hope lost? Has the Lord, the God of Israel, actually turned his back on her? The, the circumstances sure seem like it. But then, then something really curious happens. Do you remember Ruth's response in chapter one? Look at verses 16 and 17. As, as she is told, she's told to go back to Moabite land. She's told to, to leave and go back to her mom and dad and Moab and her and Orpah does this. But then this is how Ruth responds. She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything, but death parts me from you. See, Ruth's, Ruth's response is really the essence of loyal love here just as naomi is declaring that that god has no loyal love for her ruth exhibits loyal love by this this really staggering response the the moabite woman declares she will follow the god of israel and, and will remain loyal to this this embittered cursed woman the the outsider is more loyal than the insider she, she looks at the circumstances, which remember, Ruth is walking through these circumstances too. So she's not the only one suffering. And she chooses to align herself with the God of Naomi, whom, whom Naomi himself, herself has declared has, that, that God's turned his back on her. So they go to Bethlehem. And as chapter two begins, the narrative is just, just dripping with tension. And then, and you're supposed to feel it. You wanna, you wanna lean in and feel this tension in the narrative, and feel it in your soul this. There's, there's kind of a sense for the audience here that if nothing happens soon, this family is going to be wiped out. They have no hope. And, and maybe you can identify with this tension in your own life. Is God, is God loyal to his people, even if they've not been very loyal to him? Will he provide? Will he work in what seems like a a hopeless situation? Have have you felt that? I I know I have. I've walked through these seasons of life feeling this sense of, is God actually loyal? And so we begin to see through, through four scenes in our text today that perhaps God has not abandoned them after all. So the first scene, look at chapter two, verse one through three. So this is after all this devastation we've seen. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the heirs of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, that is Naomi, said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech." So the narrator introduces us to this man named Boaz as kind of a background comment. This, this little detail though heightens the tension. We start asking, who, who is he? Could he play a role in helping Naomi? You know, the, the ESV here calls him a worthy man, but that that's, that's a bit of an interpretation and a spoiler, kind of. The language here is more vague. It's much more vague. It connotes the idea of really of a wealthy landover, landowner, a kind of a, a man of substance, a hardworking man, but it also can signal a man of character. And, and the narrator kind of wants to tease us, you know. What kind of man is this Boaz? We'll have to wait and find out as the story unfolds. So then Ruth then comes back into the story and again does the unexpected thing. As in the background, we're kind of asking who's going to take care of Naomi? Well, the town doesn't seem to, and Naomi doesn't seem to be doing anything either. But then Ruth steps out and and illustrates for us once again, what loyal love looks like. She takes it upon herself to go to the fields and support Naomi. She did not have to do this. In fact, this was Naomi's job, you need to understand. Naomi should have been the one going out into the field to take care of themselves. Rather, a Moabite woman does it. She goes out as a foreigner, as a widow, as an unprotected woman alone. She could have, you know, she could have run home to mommy mobite and daddy mobite, but instead she goes to the fields to sweat. And the writer then surprises us by saying she just happens to come across the fields of this, this Boaz fellow. It's not intentional on her part. She, she seemingly has no knowledge of Boaz at this point. Yet this is the very field she arrives at. So then Boaz shows up in scene two. Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz comes to the field and and he greets the workers. And and significantly, the very first word out of his mouth is the divine name of God, Lord. That's L-O-R-D, all caps in your Bible. And it's in all caps. This is often rendered Uh, as the divine name Yahweh, you might hear, or maybe in older uh, uh, books, you'll hear Jehovah. It's the same thing, Yahweh, the divine name. And as soon as we see this, immediately, this raises kind of the narrative tension. For the last time, do you remember the last time God's divine name was used in Ruth? It was in Naomi's mouth when she was accusing God of forsaking her and leaving her without hope. But here, the divine name is used in a blessing formula. Perhaps, just perhaps, God will will show up instead of forsaking, like Naomi thinks. Boaz then notices this this woman standing over at the side, and she doesn't quite dress like one of the villagers. So in verse 5, he asks his administrator who this is, and look carefully at how the administrator responds in verse 6 in the first part of 7. He responds by saying, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. See, the administrator He he puts the emphasis on the fact she is a Moabite. You know, what is a Moabite woman doing here? He seems to apply. And, And moreover, he says that she has the audacity to ask to gather sheaves from the field as a Moabite. Then he concludes with this last statement. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Now, your Bible might have a note here that says something like the meaning of the Hebrew phrase is uncertain. Well, it's not uncertain. We know what every word here means. It's just that it makes no sense. See, the ESV has except for a short rest, but literally this is the, oh, several words just put together. This, comma, her dwelling, comma, the house, comma, a little. It makes no sense. And, and that's actually the point. The point is the administrator is flustered. He, he, he's kind of just flustered what's going on. The, the image is that Ruth is just kind of standing there waiting for permission. And she's been doing this all day. See, the ESV has, she has continued from early morning, but it's much more natural to be, she has stood there from early morning. In other words, the administrator starts kind of fumbling over his words, trying to explain why this mobile woman is just standing around waiting for permission to glean. And all the while, we, the audience, as we're seeing this play out, and he's kind of stuttering and pondering what to say to Boaz, we're wondering, is Ruth just about to be thrown out and sent back home to Naomi? Because that's what we expect. For for Moabites don't have any right to, to glean in the field. But then Boaz, Boaz doesn't even listen. He doesn't listen. Almost hilariously, he ignores the administrator outright. He never even responds to the administrator. He turns instead to speak directly to Ruth in the third scene. And this is stunning in the story. As he turns right to her, and then in verse 8, he begins, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? See, her own identity is that she's a foreigner. She understands the situation. But Boaz answered her in verse 11 here, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants." See, this is is not what we expect. The normal practice would be to come to the field after the reapers are done and kind of scrounge around for some dropped grain. But totally ignoring the administrator's report, Boaz turns to Ruth and he grants her not merely permission to pick up some sheaves, He charges her to not leave his field at all, but to stay there and to then cling to the reapers themselves. See, she will get the first pick of everything. This is huge. Any ancient reader reading this just would be like, whoa, what is going on here? Then it gets even better. He issues an order to protect Ruth. He says, nobody will touch you. Not one person. Here's Ruth, the Moabite, Ruth, the impoverished daughter-in-law of Naomi, Ruth, who along with Naomi had had no hope of survival in chapter one. This is what loyal love is, the, the surprise and unexpected loving action toward Ruth, a, a really a loyal love that Naomi thought could not exist from the Lord anymore. She called it into question, chapter one, and said, it's not more. I'm bitter. So notice especially what Boaz says in chapter two, verse 12, when he's written this dialogue with her and he responds to her, he says to her, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, he's not saying that somehow Ruth is earning favor from God. Rather, Boaz recognizes that Ruth has has placed herself under the care of the God of Israel, despite Naomi's response. And he then assures her, what he's saying in this is he's assuring her that God has not forgotten her, despite the circumstances she finds herself in. This is why Ruth responds with just this this exclamation of surprise of kind of, how can this be? How is this possible? But then it gets only more stunning. Look at the final scene now in verses 14 through 16. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. This, this This is ridiculous. This doesn't happen in this kind of world. Uh, everybody's kind of reading this going what what is the Boaz doing and then he goes on here uh says so she sat beside the reapers and he passed her her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over when she rose to glean Boaz instructed his young men saying let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. For many of you, maybe, maybe Ruth is a, a story you've read many times, and, and so it doesn't feel fresh to you, but you need to understand right now that this is not normal, what just happened. This is an excessive amount of food for her to be able to gather. It's far more than Naomi and her need. See, remember, remember she's a Moabite the narrator keeps reminding us of this. She has no right to do this. And even if she is an Israelite with the right to glean, the Mosaic laws all suggest that Boaz's command to leave bundles behind is way beyond the law. We find these laws like in the books of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and around there. Uh, But for one example, Let me read to you Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22, where this, this very issue comes up. It says, and when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. Now, God here commands that after the reaping, Farmers just kind of leave the fragments that weren't collected for the poor. But here in Ruth, here Boaz is saying, he's saying to his reapers, you need to actually take out actual bundles, take them out and drop them on the ground for her purposely. So this is stunning. At at the beginning of this passage in chapter two, it it looked like Naomi and Ruth had no hope, Their, their circumstances were dire. And God really, it really looked like he had abandoned them and left them out to dry. But here the story takes a sudden turn. This this man who professes the name of God is doing totally unexpected things. He protects here a widow. He allows a non-Israelite to glean. He dumps food in front of her as the audience is reading this, as we're hearing this, the first question that comes to my mind is what is God up to? What is he doing? This this passage begins to call into question Naomi's complaints in chapter one. Maybe, maybe, just maybe God is in fact still showing loyal love to her and Ruth. The, The story of Ruth here invites us in to start kind of questioning our own doubt in our own lives, to begin kind of questioning our own discouragement. Is it possible, is it possible that God is right now acting with loyal love in the very situation that you are facing that seems very difficult to you? Like Naomi, you you might not see how, how it is, but perhaps God is is kind of writing a a different story from the one that we have written in our heads. So the book of Ruth shows us something very important about hope. That's why I love this book. And it's something about hope that we need to kind of grab hold of and, and fix ourselves upon, particularly here at the beginning of the new year. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is not some kind of passive thing that just kind of you wait for and look around and hope it just kind of falls upon you. You can't sit around and just let this happen and, and hopefully everything will just turn out okay. No. Hope instead is a virtue in Christian tradition. Hope is a virtue that is rooted in and flourishes in nothing else but the character of God. And in the first two chapters of the book of Ruth, we see the character of God on trial as he shows Naomi, step by step, that perhaps his character of loyal love is still true despite her circumstances. That's the soil that hope grows in. The way way I would define hope here is that hope is the practice of believing God's loyal love as true for my situation right now and the future. Hope is the practice, the practice of believing God's loyal love as true for my situation right now and the future. And for Ruth and Naomi here in chapter two, the future is still uncertain, isn't it? You're going to have to see in the weeks to come how this plays out. And, And maybe your future is feeling uncertain as well today. But Ruth, this whole book is calling us to practice the spiritual discipline of hope, to to look to the God who is quietly at work in ways that we don't always see. Trust him. Like in the Narnia books, if you're familiar with, when when Aslan was on the move, God and Christ is on the move in your life. He's calling to you, I believe, even right now. He can handle your questions. He can handle your fears. He can handle your concerns, even your doubts about his loyal love. See, Christian hope, Christian hope believes that God's faithful, steadfast love will shine more brightly through and because of whatever trial you're going through. And I know that that you may not believe that right now. I don't always believe that. Naomi sure did not. But I want to encourage you this morning to just just crack open that door, open it up and watch what God wants to do in your life. Ask God, ask God to show you his loyal love and then pray for hope. Not that that your circumstances will suddenly change, but pray that your mindset will change, that you will begin pondering more the loyal love of God than pondering and thinking about that obstacle that you are facing. See, that's the spiritual discipline of hope. For God's steadfast, loyal love endures forever, as the Psalms say. And nothing, no circumstance that you face this year is going to change that love for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you please just pray with me? Father God, I pray for all those who are in Nashville right now. I pray, Father, that the steadfast loyal love of God would be made manifest in their lives through the power of your Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus. I pray, Father, for those who are doubting just like Naomi did and calling into question. Lord, I pray that that you would gently grab hold of them and, and you would gently lead them out to see hope, to see that you have not left them, that you have not abandoned them in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would bless this church, you would bless this body of believers, that these followers of Jesus would just grow in the hope of God, that you would pour out upon them your hope, and that as they continue in this story of Ruth, Lord, would you open their eyes and their ears just to see the glorious nature of the character of God in Scripture. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.